Let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD, specifically Slackware 14.2. Um, of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you, even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages, so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. The last two packages in the D for developer or development set in Slackware are Swig and Yasm. I feel like I should have more useful things to say about Swig than I actually do because basically I have nothing but a, a basic demo. Sort of here's the principle of the of the tool, and I wish I had more. But fact of the matter is that j- just like S Trace and Subversion, I don't use this tool myself. Not saying I'll never use it in the future, but currently I have not ever done this. But I've been around enough projects that do use Swig that I'm vaguely familiar with how it works. So here's how. Here's what it is. So Swig is a a utility to create a wrapper, a wrapper library around your C code or your C++ code or your C sharp code or your Java code I think a bunch of different things that yeah Java um a, a bunch of different things I think or is that that can it create a wrapper for Java I forget either way the idea is that you might have a library written in C or C++ or whatever and you might think, gee, it'd be really nice to provide people who don't write in this language access to the tool that I've just written. So you want to take your C library, let's say, and produce Python bindings or Perl bindings to that library. You want to enable people to import something or inc- uh, not include... Um, use in Perl, for instance, the, the, a library that, that runs your code without them having to actually write or interface with your code directly. If that sounds like science fiction, it's not at all. Uh, this is actually what really Lua and Python kind of are in the end anyway. They're just front ends to lower level code or higher level code, whichever, I forget which way that scale goes. Um, so this is a very normal process, and Swig simply makes it, in theory, easy to create. And I say in theory because I've had mixed success with Swig, and there's this major caveat of I don't actually use Swig, so naturally I would have limited success with it. Um, after all, I don't really, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm just tinkering with it for the sake of this podcast. That that said, I, I think one thing that even tinkering shows, and I think, I believe Swig developers would probably agree with this, is that code is a is a highly unique thing. And so if you just throw a bunch of code at Swig and hope that out the other end is going to, to be produced a completely usable wrapping around your your library, um, you might be disappointed. You know, so in other words, there might be some adjustments that you have to make. You might have to get in there and really make some fine-tuned adjustments 
in order to make the thing on the other end make sense or or even work. So let's start out with something really, really simple, and that'll be a C application called myvar.c. And uh, I don't know that I'll need anything in this particular... I don't think I need to include anything, so I'm just going to do int main, parentheses, parentheses, semicolon... Uh, not semicolon, curly brace. No, actually, sorry, I'm not going to start with that at all. I'm going to start at the top of the file. I'm going to declare a double. D-O-U-B-L-E, double, I'll call it penguin, and I'll, I'll do equals uh, 3.0, semicolon. Next line, I'll do int main, parentheses, parentheses, curly brace, return, parentheses, zero, close parentheses, semicolon, close curly brace. So it's a four-line file. All it does is it declares a double, a variable that contains a double, an integer with a, a decimal point, and then it creates a, a, a do-nothing function, int main, that all it does is return zero. That's that's its only purpose in life. So now I'm going to create a new file. So that's myvar.c. That's my C code. Now I'm going to create myvar.i. I stands for interface. This is a Swig-specific file. Swig wants this information in order to process the, the, the data about your application. So the first line is percent sign module, and then a space, and then some name. And, and this would be the, you know, if you think of it in GCC terms, this would be the name of your executable that you create when, you, when you're doing GCC blah.c dash o name. That, that, that would be this. So in, in other words, long story short, myvar. That's what I'm going to call it. I called my, my, my library file myvar.c, so I'm just going to call this module myvar. That's what I'm creating with swig. Percent curly brace. Uh, next line. Percent curly brace. This is where I'm going to list my, um, the, the, the things that swig needs to be aware of. Like, th these are the, sort of the inputs and outputs. So I want to, to sort of expose, as it were, the double penguin. So I'm going to do extern, as in external, space double, space penguin, semicolon. That's all I need for this, because that's really the only data that I need available through Swig. Uh, percent sign, close curly brace, and then next line, I'm going to do that again. Extern, space double, space penguin, semicolon. That's the interface file. That's all Swig needs. It can get a lot more complex, and I'll do a little uh, example after this where, where it does get more complex, but for now, that's all you need. So now I can do a swig dash... I'm going to do um, Perl 5. So swig dash Perl 5 myvar.i. That creates... Let me see what that creates. That creates a file called myvar.pm, which is a Perl file, and then myvar underscore wrap, w-r-a-p, dot c. So this is a new code that I did not have before, generated by Swig. So now that I've got this new, new code, I need to compile it. Now I'm not going to link it yet, but I need to compile the new code and my old, my, my original code, I need to compile those into, into something that I can use elsewhere. So to do that, it's going to be a uh, GCC-C, because we're not linking yet, dash capital D underscore reentrant, space dash capital D underscore GNU underscore source, all capitals dash F wrap V, space dash F no dash strict dash 
aliasing dash pipe dash f stack protector strong dash capital I user include dash d underscore large file underscore source dash d file underscore offset underscore bits equals 64. That's an important one for Perl. Dash d underscore fortify source equals 2. Did I already say that? Uh, dash o2 dash f pick all capital pic. Well, lowercase f, but pick is all capitals. Dash f pick all capital pic capitals. Dash i slash user slash lib64 slash perl5 slash core all capitals c-o-r-e myvar dot c myvar underscore wrap dot c let's find out what that produced well it produced a myvar dot o file as well as a myvar underscore wrap dot o file so now i have two dot o files two object files that i need to combine with GCC into a single .so file. That can be done in this case with, a, with another GCC command, so it's going to be gcc-shared-o2-fpic, all capital P-I-C, dash L user lib 64 dash F stack dash protector dash strong and then that's going to be myvar.o and myvar underscore wrap.o. And then for the output, dash o, I'm going to just call it myvar.so. And that seems to have worked. And a really quick and dirty way to test this would be to type in Perl and then use myvar, semicolon, print, dollar sign myvar, we've been here before, uh, colon, colon, penguin, semicolon, return and then and then I'm done so I'm just going to do control D to get out of this prompt and I should see the output of my var penguin and I do in front of my my prompt there's a 3 not very exciting admittedly but I was able to access that double variable that double integer the 3.0 through this C library library by having Swig process that library and turn it into essentially a Perl module for me. Kind of cool if you think about it, even though even though it is admittedly not very useful in this in this specific iteration. But the the things to to the, the real basics that I've demonstrated here are that you have a, a C file or a source code file, and then you have an interface file, and the interface file. I think of it almost as like a flat pack portal where flat pack is containerized and you have to kind of poke a hole through it and tell it yes you're allowed to see the user's home directory. This is kind of in a similar way I guess like that or you might also think of it as an API really. And and you're you're telling Swig, "Hey, I need this data right here to be to to be made available to to the thing that I'm that, that I want to hook into this library, and, and actually, you know, I might I might just end it there for Swig, because I feel oh, and I should mention maybe that I'm not using the Swig version that ships with Slackware. I I recompiled Swig so that it works with Python three for myself. So that I and and in doing that, I just decided well, I might as well update Swig. So I'm on Swig dash four dot o dot two while the one that comes with Slackware is something like 3.10, I think, or 3.1, or something like that. There was a, a 3 in it, for sure. Major version was definitely 3. I mean, I don't think that should matter all that much in terms of just 
a demo, but I mean, certainly if, if you're going to use Swig in real life, you might want to update. The good news is that it's pretty easy to update. It's, it's, you, you just compile it and install and, and do an upgrade PKG. It's actually quite simple to do, I found, which is always nice. Um, so that's Swig. And then the reason I'm kind of walking away from all of this right now is because I feel like to do more examples of it, while I guess maybe it could be interesting, it would just be a lot of um, kind of like the throwing out of GCC options that I just did for Perl. It's just a bunch of strings that don't really go together, and and I think you get the, the general idea. Source code, interface file, stick them together. And it's different depending on what, what you're trying to produce. And and it's even more different depending on what you've written. So, for instance, uh, for a Python module, the process is roughly the same, except that you would do an, a GCC-fpic lowercase pic dash c. So don't link yet. And then your c your c files like your you know my my app dot c and then my app underscore wrap dot c that produces my app underscore wrap dot o and my app dot o, which you could then process you you could link them with ld um, so ld space dash shared my app dot o my app under, yeah my app underscore wrap dot o and then dash o for your output my app dot so and then you would have a my app dot pi in your current directory which you could theoretically import with python and access your 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 my app library or whatever i guess it would make more sense to be my lib rather than my app but too late now okay so anyway that's the that's the process and swig admits that while sometimes you might just be able to feed swig the header file and get all the information from the header file that you need but other times you might have things that that wouldn't appear in the header file so you got to include those so there are things that you would need to do potentially to adapt your interface file so that that Swig can make the most use of it and give you something that is useful to you. Supported scripting languages by Swig, it's kind of impressive. It can provide Java, a a wrapper for Java, a wrapper for Guile, a wrapper for Go, for D, Lua, OCaml, Octave, Perl, PHP, Python, R, Ruby, TCL, and more. There's m- yet more to that list. So, oh, JavaScript, that's a big one. So yeah, they're, they're all over the place. It's kind of impressive. And if you're writing C or C++ or, or something like that and want to provide a, an easy-to-script interface to your, to your language, Swig could be the thing that you'd want to look at. Let's go get a cup of coffee. <laughs> said finally this is the last package of the d for developer series in slackware it is yasm yasm is a rewrite of nasm and nasm if you'll recall is an assembly language compiler 
thing. And I think it's also the language, actually. Um, but, but Yasm is a BSD licensed version of Nasm, and it has aspirations of producing something called LibYasm, which for all I know already exists and is in use in all kinds of places. But according to their website, they're still aspiring toward it. And, and LibYasm will be, uh, the, the library version of Yasm, I guess. So people can use assembly code, uh, sort of as, as, you know, in addition to other things. So, Yasm is going to be, I'm going to be fairly quick about this because there's not a whole lot that I have to say about Yasm that I didn't already say about Nasm, mostly which consisted of uh, me not knowing anything about assembly code. Uh, however, I am going to urge you again to go listen to the Black Kernel Hacker Public Radio episode about how Black Kernel, that's the user's, the username is Black Kernel how Black Kernel got into computing. And there's a section on assembly code that that is just so enlightening. It's really, really, just really cool information and um, context about assembly that you just, that really doesn't belong in that episode at all. It, it belongs in its own episode. Anyway, it's episode 3421. It's called My Journey into Technology or something like that. And it is... Yeah, it's, it's a very cool episode. Definitely go check that out if you're at all interested in assembly. I mean, it's not going to teach you assembly, but it, it gives you a lot of context that that kind of explained a lot to me. And, and frankly, I feel like the, the little that I do have to say about Yasm is mostly because of that episode. It, it really, really helped me just kind of approach this from a different angle and kind of wrap my head around all of this a, a little bit better. N- not a lot, but I mean, it, it was still helpful. What what I have is is more than I had, and that's a good thing. These are the, my my example is is derived from a lot of different examples I found online. I could have done this much much more effectively by just going and reading all of the documentation, but I, I just as I said with Nasm, I think I don't anticipate myself getting into assembly. I, I I don't find that that degree of of low level operation all that enjoyable. At least you know not yet. I don't know. Maybe if I keep at it, maybe I'll learn to love it. But I I don't find it all that enjoyable. So I do recall, as you may recall, from assemb- uh, from Nasm that assembly operates more or less in two sections. There's section dot data and there's section dot text text. So the data is where I think of it as establishing your 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 variables in a in a normal program. It's kind of you're, you're declaring all of the things that you're going to use later on. So uh, the first one we'll create is msg, and we're going to type that as db, which is data byte. And the data bytes we are going to enter is single quote hello world close single quote. The next one we're going to do is in L for new line, and that is going to be of a type DB, which is a data byte. And the, the the thing that we're going to use for that is 0x0a. You can play around with different characters uh, defined as, as new lines. It does produce some interesting results, but 0x0a is what you'd expect. Message length, or msgln, that is of a type EQ, which denotes that this is a relocatable uh, value to a symbol. And so if you if you set it to EQU and then as the 
as the value for this dollar sign dash msg then you're telling yasm to set msg len to the uh byte count or the the the, the character count of this in this case the string of hello world so the contents of msg so in in this particular case message length would be 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 but i'm i'm obviously putting a dollar sign dash msg so that it calculates that for me section space dot T-E-X-T. Global space underscore start is the directive that uh, kicks us off. And then within underscore start colon, we put this code. M-O-V-R-A-X comma one. R-A-X is a registry. Don't know which one it is. R-A-X. Here it is. Values are returned from functions in this register. Next line is M-O-V-R-A-X. No, sorry. Uh, M-O-V rsi comma msg this is a rsi is a scratch register but apparently it's also used to pass um to pass a function argument in 64 bit and i am doing 64 bit so i'm kind of assuming that's what's going on there movrdx comma message length rdx being a scratch register again and then we we complete that that phrase with a syscall S-Y-S-C-A-L-L. Next line, M-O-V-E-A-X, comma, 60. E-A-X is the, uh, technically it shouldn't be E-A-X. I'm doing that as a demonstration. It's actually R-A-X. But interestingly, you can call R-A-X a 64-bit location. You can call it as a 32-bit entity. So M-O-V-E-A-X, comma, 60 actually produces, at least in this case, the same as uh, move RAX, comma, 60. It's just kind of interesting that, that those two are interchangeable. I'm not sure why that is, actually. And then syscall. And it's probably not interchangeable all the time. It's just something that I, I found was interchangeable in this is in this example. So anyway, that's the source code for the Hello uh, World assembly. It, it's practically unintelligible, uh, but to some people, it makes total sense. To compile that straight from Yasm, you can just do yasm-f elf64, which is going to render a 64-bit elf binary, hello.s, and indeed that does produce a file called hello.o. Make that hello.o an executable with ld-o hello, hello.o, and now if I do a dot slash hello, I get hello world. All right, so if I go back into hello.s and do, I don't know, hello clat2, and do that same sequence again, which again is yasm-f elf64 hello.s, and then I'll just do a semicolon. I know I should do double ampersand, but I don't think it's really that big of a deal. ld-o hello, hello.o, semicolon dot slash hello processes it, and I get hello clat2. So everything's working as expected. Um, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 is the message length. What happens if I do a message length of 8? Just hard code 8 in there. Let's see what happens. Well, as expected, I get hello, H-E-L-L-O-K-L, because I've, I've just shortened the message length, and when we move the data from registry to registry, I'm only moving eight bytes 
of of my message, move RDX message length. I didn't grab the whole thing. You could increase it too and see what happens. You know, instead of eight or instead of instead of eleven or twelve, go up to twenty four, see what happens. Go up to thirty two, see what happens. Go up to nine hundred and ninety nine, see what happens. It, it's interesting to tweak some of those settings just to kind of see uh, what kind of response you get. But certainly, the the more direct route to all of this would, I think, be to start with the um, the the Yasm documentation, or possibly just you know any number of the hits that you get online for assembly intro to assembly. So that's Yasm. That's everything I know about assembly, which is nothing. So it, it's it's cool. It's interesting. Yasm ha- it gives you access to assembly in a 64-bit environment, which is could be a very cool thing for you, depending on what you're doing. Um, it you know, none of it matters to me. Um, the 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 complexity of assembly, or not the complexity, the simplicity of assembly is to me something that leads to greater complexity. And I say that meaning I personally am more interested in the programming languages that reduce the amount of time and effort and thought. I have to put into making a thing work on lots of different machines. Whereas assembly, just inherently for what it is, doesn't do that. It, it is it is assembly code, and it is it is speaking very, very specifically to to specific devices. And I just I can't imagine having to think that hard about the little applications that I do. Now, would I be thinking about it differently if I were doing, you know, if I were programming chips to run little subroutines uh, upon boot or whatever, you know, like there are use cases for assembly and I I understand that they're super, super important and and they make all of our lives a lot easier. It's just not something that I personally uh, am, am terribly interested in right now. And that's not to say that I won't be interested in it later. I'm just saying right now that's not where my... It's not the use case, and it's not kind of where my interest necessarily lies. So that's it. That's that's the end. That's the developer set of applications for Slackware 14.2. Obviously, you can install different ones. There are lots of other things out there that would fall under the development banner or category. But for what's on the DVD or what's on the servers... That's everything. Next up is the E series, which uh, is Emacs. So I guess I'll be talking about Emacs for an episode in the future, which doesn't sound terrible, but not necessarily something that I'd ever expected to to necessarily do. We got some time to kill, so um, I'm going to talk about a little bit um, about some listener feedback. This is from Matthias. And he says that he wants to address the part about packaging software. Would it seem feasible to transform an app image-like thing into a DEB or RPM in an automated manner? If it would be feasible, most parties could have their way. If such transformation happens on a user's machine, the result could be installed in slash opt. I think along the lines of, hey, apt, I'm the transformation tool, put this result of transformation into slash opt, and keep a record of everything. This seems like a very, it does seem feasible to me. I think probably the, I mean, I I, I think it's feasible because we could just package spec files or whatever the Debian ones use. I haven't built a .deb file in such a long time. Um, But whatever that spec file is, 
you know, you could just include that in the package or, or something like it that kind of identified of this big mess of dependencies and stuff. Um, here are the different packages. You know, so, so in other words, you could say this flat pack or this app image is essentially a collection of three RPMs, foo, bar, and baz. Really, I'm delivering foo, but because I couldn't rely on everyone having bar and baz, I, I, I packaged bar and baz along with foo and put them all into a big box and labeled it app image or RPM or uh, uh, flat pack rather. And, and now if you want, you could explode this or expand this box and get all the bits and pieces out and sprinkle it across your system. So could that work? Yes. And when I say all across your system, obviously Matthias's specific idea was to install it into slash opt. So that's not all across your system. There is precedence for... So there are two things that we're talking about here, right? There, there's grouping packages, essentially packages together based on their dependency, like locally defined dependencies. That's what an app directory is. So the, that's the, the precedence for that is app image and Flatpak. That's what they're doing, and that's why they're doing it, because they can't rely on you having libpng16 because they suspect that your distro might have released with libpng12, so they're going to give you libpng16 anyway. You might already have it on your system, they're going to give it to you again, just because that way you're sure to have it, no doubt, you have the right version, it's got the feature they need, everything's going to run as expected. So what if we took all of those things and then just redefined the root where they're going to be installed? And amazingly, that's exactly, largely, what package source does? If you go to pkgsrc package source.net, it's got to be .net. I know this. Package source.net. All right, maybe not. Package pkgsrc.org. Darn it. I, I keep thinking it's .net because it's NetBSD. Anyway, package source.org. You go there, you can set up package source. I, I've got to do an episode on this sometime, a dedicated episode, and, and pin it somewhere. Um, you go to packagesource.net.org, uh, you download the package source for that quarter. They, they have quarterly releases, so there's, you get stability insofar as, you know, you, you, you might feel compelled to update four times a year. That's not that bad. Um, you, you, you download that, you run the bmake on, on the, 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 the bootstrap, bmake bootstrap maybe, or, or just a dot slash bootstrap dot linux dot sh, or whatever it is, uh, and it, it sets everything up, and then you've got this sort of package ecosystem. Anywhere on your system, you, you go in there, you look for the package that you want, and then you can build it. And the first time you build it, it builds so much stuff. And you think, I've made a horrible mistake here. But because it, it does, it really does build. I mean, it's building a little system, basically, with all of the parts that you need. Like, the, just the, the basic stuff. And you think, but I already have that on my system. And, and I've asked, I have literally asked on the mailing list, um, how could I, how can I go, how can I get around this? I know I'm not supposed to, but how could I? And there is a way you can set up the, the resolution of, of, dependencies to be, you know, to force it to use the system version of it rather than the the package source version. But ultimately it is just easier as 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 you might expect since that's what they recommend to simply let package source build everything that it needs to build. And yes, you'll have another version, yet another version of Python, yet another version of Perl, yet another version of 
lib whatever. And it just won't matter because everything gets installed into slash user slash local slash pkg maybe. Or maybe it's just slash usr slash pkg. I forget. But it's it's some new location that you that that wh- where things can depend on each other and rely upon each other and nothing ever collides well when i say nothing i mean nothing within that ecosystem so other systems like geeks and like i think nix os or or whatever they call themselves um is i mean i know nix os calls itself nix os but whatever that packaging format is i think is maybe just nix um other systems, other other answers to all of this have even hyper, m- more local dependencies, whereby you could install two versions of libpng, for instance, and and they'll happily be on the same hard drive without ever colliding with each other, because the thing, the one thing that calls libpng sixteen is is there in that directory and everything else on your system is looking over here for libpng12 or 14 or whatever. So, yeah, there are there are answers to this. We already have the answers. I think if you asked me, I think the actual problem ultimately at the end of the day is that we can't decide on a package f- format on Linux. And and that's the problem. Like that's the that's the real problem. Like that doesn't solve. No, it that is the problem. Actually, that's the problem. And it's annoying. It's an annoying problem to have because I both understand it and I hate it. Um, I understand it. Well, we all understand it technically, right? Because if we all count to three, one, two, three, and we say our preferred package on three or after three, one, two, three, TGZ, we probably all said something different. Maybe. Maybe this particular podcast is a bad example because probably there's a good contingency of people who would say, oh yeah, Slack packages for sure. But I mean, generally speaking, you, you, you know, Slack package might not be the preferred format for every Linux user. In fact, I would hazard a guess to say that it isn't. Um, and, and then, you know, I mean, RPM seems like a really good standard for, by, 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 from where I'm sitting. But that's purely because I see that it is the official packaging spec in something arbitrarily called the Linux standard base, and and it has it has support. It has sort of like the the, the support of of being called a standard. I mean that's why Slackware ships with RPM and RPM two TGZ because based on the the arbitrary standard that some group of some people made one time. RPM was listed. And that's it. Like, that's that's the only reason that that would be, you know, preferable. And and even then, I, I don't much really, I don't love it. I, I don't find them easy to make. I find them time-consuming to make RPMs. Uh, I, I, I don't, I think Slack packages are a lot easier to make. I think it's almost undeniable. I mean, you can, I just made a Slack package the other day for Swig. And all I did was Download swig dot slash configure with like a prefix and a libdir defined. Make make install destdir slash temp slash swig and then go into that directory once it's finished installing into that directory and do a make pkg dash cy dash ln and upgrade the swig package with the result. So it's like five steps, but you know four of those steps are the things that you would do anyway to package it so so like the the act of packaging it is also the act of installing it it's a beautiful beautiful thing but 
try telling anyone else that. So yeah, I think I think the issue here, and you know, and my my other issue about flat packs and app images is that well, at least then we'll have a target that can encompass a lot of Linux distributions because there are people out there who develop applications and would be happy to target Linux, except that whenever they ask how to do that, we have 32 different distributions with 32 different package requirements and and expect people to take that in stride. So having, again, one packaging format would then eliminate sort of that problem. So really, I, I think that I think we have and have had all the tools that we really need for like the 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 big big things for for flat packs and app images. I think we've got those tools. It, it, it there might you know there might be a couple of things that would require adjustment. Like if we if we did let's say decide that RPM was the official packaging format, then or who cares if it's RPM? Let's call it foo. If Foo was the the official packaging format, then probably Foo wasn't designed to install libpng12 and libpng16 without a conflict. So we would have to make some kind of adjustment to to say, well, you know what, it's okay. If, if should this ever occur, there's going to be a new switch, a new option that you can pass that says like, you know, avoid dash conflict or something like that. Dash dash avoid dash conflict or dash dash no dash conflict. I don't know. Something like that. And, and then people will be able to install, you know, the GIMP 2.10 and GIMP 2.8 or, or 2.10 and, and GIMP 3 beta or whatever at the same time without any, without any huge conflicts. But I mean, this is not rocket science. I mean, it is to me. I, I couldn't, I can't design this system. I don't know how to do it. But it, I know it's not rocket science because it's already been done. We have all of the tools that we need. Now, that said, some other people might say, well, that's just not exactly true because Flatpak certainly has extra, you know, it has different, different, uh, features. It's got security features and other things, or, or it gives you the benefit of, of, you know, whatever it does on Silver Blue. I, I don't know. So, you know, there, there might be other, things that that other people care about but from from my point of view if if the question is how can we get packages how can we reduce the number of packagers required to produce the same number of packages and also enable people who are not packagers to also produce packages for the maximum number of distributions then i feel like we have all of the tools we need for that to all to happen already okay so uh, Matthias continues. He says, hardware, this was not mentioned on the show. Would you happen to know about such a device? Affordable product for young students and low weight. Have a notebook-like shape, as in display and keyboard. Have ports for external keyboard, display, mouse, and ethernet. Be able to run Linux in text mode. And be able to run X, uh, an X Windows server, Xorg, uh, X11, whatever it's called. Price aside, the Pi 400 would be such a device, but it lacks a display. I would like to set up a multi-seat environment, like one PC or notebook has two, two network cards, one uh, network card connected to the LAN, and one network card connected to a separate switch serving TTYs, so like a, a, a text terminal. And then the Pi-like device with a, with a screen providing a shell session on that same PC. So essentially a mainframe. 
And um, the the mainframe idea, like that sort of dumb terminal sitting around, uh, you know, sort of all operating on the same device is a very, very cool project. And it can be done really actually surprisingly easy with... Uh, well, if you're doing a graphical login, you you can do it really quite easily with uh, X. Well, X, XDM, KDM, GDM, all of those can do it. I think. Um, well, KDM doesn't exist. It's SDDM now. Um, I think GDM could still probably do it, but XDM for sure can do it. You can literally log into any host. Uh, you just need to open up your X hosts permissions to allow things to log in through one of those session uh, managers. What's really, what comes to mind immediately though for the dumb terminal, and this this might be overkill, and yeah, it's probably overkill, it's probably too stylish, but the thing that comes to mind is a thing called CrowPi, C-R-O-W-P-I. It's a weird name, uh, but apparently it it was taken because Crows are actually really, really intelligent, like shockingly intelligent, and so they're 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 good at learning, in other words. And this is the Raspberry Pi learning kit or education kit. And uh, there's there's a new version called Crow Pi Two, appropriately, which I don't care for as much as the original, which was just Crow Pi. It is a a circuit. It, it's the Pi hooked up to a little monitor with like this circuit board for activities like there are motion detectors and proximity detectors and buttons and LED screens all kinds of cool things but the 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 form factor is this little briefcase so the the look of the thing is like a um uh, like a, a 1960s spy uh, get up you know it's kind of like it's something that you would definitely see. You would think to see the man from Uncle opening a briefcase and seeing something like this. You know, it just—it looks so cool. I think it's a Pi Three, probably. As I say, I mean, there is a new version that has a different form factor, and the form factor is more like a laptop. It looks like a laptop. I just don't. I don't think that looks nearly as cool as as these as this Crow Pie thing. I don't know that it comes with a keyboard either. Now that I'm thinking about it, uh, the price is like two hundred and sixty dollars. So it's not, you know, in if you're if if you look at if you look at the pie and you know you get the monitor, I don't know. It's it's a lot, two hundred and sixty bucks for this. It is very cool though, and I wanted to mention it because it just if you haven't seen it, look it up. Like I say, not the Crow Pie two, but the Crow Pie, the first one. It really is. It's very cool. Uh, other than that, yeah, I don't know of any great little devices. I I used to be so so fond of the pocket pocket chip, and uh, you know, I mean, that was like a seventy dollar device with a little built in keyboard that was horrible. So you'd still have to buy the external keyboard, but it had a little screen, and it was driven by a a, a little a tiny tiny like almost Raspberry Pi Zero sized. Um, system on a chip so that was very cool for a while but that's they've gone out of business so that doesn't exist anymore and i'm just not sure yeah what's really out there i think for for cheap for cheap dumb terminals i guess i uh, other than just thinking of the style of crow pie i guess my default in real life setting would be just uh, recycle, you know, like go to your nearest tip shop or your uh, thrift store or whatever and pick up used 
laptops and re revive them with Linux and then then set them up. I mean, I, I guess that's that's what I would think off the top of my head. Great question and a really cool project. I think um, I have often thought, you know, kind of dreamt of doing the the mock mainframe project uh, or what, what do they what do they call it the um, there's a there's a proper term for that and there is a project or actually I think two projects but one one I'm vaguely familiar with uh, that that are that, that specifically target that use case where where you have like your your main server and then a bunch of thin clients sitting around it that kind of tap into it in one way or another uh, it was the it's it's the Linux terminal server project that's ltsp.org. They I think it's I I guess you would call that a probably a distribution specifically designed for that use case where you you have clients logging into a a unified system uh, and then there's also the thin station is what it's called not think station but thin station t h i n s t a T-I-O-N, and uh, that, from what I understand, I've, I've never actually sort of used a thin station. I've never seen it in use that I know of, but it's it's basically the same idea. Um, it's it's based on Linux, um, but you could connect to several other things as well uh, because this just, that's what it does. It, 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 it taps into some larger mother brain and serves you the content over your little thin client or your dumb terminal or whatever you want to call it. I, I've never used either of them. Well, I might have used one briefly at one point, but I, I have used the protocols. And there are protocols that, that essentially do this as well. And and I have used those like every day for three, for three years. Uh, the, I think the system that I was working on was uh, using OpenNX, which is the the open source drop-in replacement for NX, which is by No Machine. There's Spice, there's X itself, uh, as I mentioned. Yeah, there there are things that uh, free RDP, I guess, would probably count. There there are lots of things that enable this kind of thing, and I've I've I've, I've often wanted to do something like this. But you know, the the weird thing about that is that if you do that, you kind of need users. I mean, you don't. You can do that for your, yourself, and you can have you could have your main computer, you know, your actual computer, the one that you built uh, in your attic or something, and then dumb terminals all around your apartment or your house or whatever, and and that way, you know, you go into your office and you log into your server, you go out to the the lounge and you log in from a different, you know, so you could do it. I just, I, I in practice, I never felt like that was really a benefit for me and I, I felt like sometimes there's a, a different benefit to not having connected computers in a weird way because certainly for me I prefer Slackware so that's what's on my main machine but I do like to dabble with other things so it's nice to have something else on a laptop um, and it's super easy these days to just grab files off of the other computer because the file sharing stuff is just so smoothly built into KDE and GNOME it's just not, not it doesn't even you don't even think about it even so it's kind of cool to think about that mythical mainframe experience and sometimes yeah I think it would be cool to set that up maybe someday I will who knows but good luck Matthias on that thanks for the feedback thanks for listening everyone we got through the D for development series next up E for Emacs talk to you then
Thanks for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted. Until next time, thanks for listening, and keep the source open. Stupid, petty little mind! <laughs>